Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer reviewed research and reviews from our May 2017 issue. This month, we feature several articles from our Focus on Women's Mental Health special section. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Childbirth and bipolar disorder have been linked across various studies. Evidence shows that a first-onset affective episode requiring inpatient treatment in the postpartum period can be a marker of bipolar disorder. However, it is unknown whether milder affective episodes treated with antidepressants during this period are also indicators of underlying bipolar disorder. To investigate this question, researchers from Denmark, the United States, and the Netherlands conducted a population-based cohort study using Danish national registers. This government and private-funded study, our CME offering for this month, comprised 100,000 women who had given birth and had no psychiatric history at the time of birth. The first prescription ever redeemed for an antidepressant was used as an indicator of the first onset of an effective episode. After controlling for confounding factors, the researchers found that the risk of bipolar disorder among women with a postpartum effective episode was nearly two times higher than in women with an effective episode outside the postpartum period. This study demonstrates that less severe non-psychotic affective episodes following childbirth can also be markers of underlying bipolar disorder. The authors conclude that women who fill an antidepressant prescription following childbirth should be asked about hypomanic or manic symptoms and be monitored long-term. In clinical practice, health professionals should consider a possible bipolar spectrum disorder when antidepressant monotherapy is ineffective or the individual woman experiences persistent and concerning symptoms. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the May Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Short-term residential programs are an effective treatment option for adolescents with severe major depressive disorder. Nonetheless, about one-third of these patients are re-hospitalized within a year of discharge, which takes a substantial psychosocial toll on patients and their families. The author's goal in this government and private-funded study was to identify reliable predictors of re-hospitalization among depressed adolescents. Recognizing these predictors can help clinicians identify high-risk patients and inform treatment delivery. The authors recruited 165 adolescents with major depressive disorder at admission to an acute residential treatment program. Participants completed a battery of clinical interviews and questionnaires that assessed demographic characteristics, psychiatric diagnoses and symptom severity, suicidality and self-injury, early life stress, and risk-taking behavior. After patients were discharged, the researchers monitored readmissions to the same residential service over six months. Overall, 12% of adolescents were readmitted during the follow-up period. In a statistical model that controlled for other strong predictors, only the frequency of non-suicidal self-injury was associated with rehospitalization. 
Specifically, each additional instance of self-injury in the month prior to hospitalization raised the adolescent's odds of later readmission by 5%. The authors conclude that self-injury may also play a central role in determining outcomes. Therefore, implementing targeted interventions to reduce self-injury during treatment of depressed adolescents is critical, as this is the strongest predictor of later rehospitalization. Neonatal discontinuation syndrome is a set of signs associated with exposure to an antidepressant during fetal life. These signs include irritability, feeding difficulties, tremors, excessive crying, and sleep disturbances. Yang and colleagues conducted a study to find out whether infants exposed in the womb to serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants, or SRIs, and infants exposed to an untreated maternal mood disorder had more neonatal discontinuation signs than an unexposed group of infants. The infants were examined at two to four weeks of age, which is later than in most studies, as the authors wanted to determine whether infants still had residual signs from fetal exposure. They studied 214 mothers in three groups, those who were not taking psychotropic medication and had no mood disorder, those with a mood disorder who were taking an SRI, and those who had a mood disorder but did not take psychotropic medication. One-third of infants in all groups had neonatal discontinuation signs at two to four weeks. An interesting finding was that women in the SRI group had a nearly three-fold higher preterm birth rate compared to the other two groups. It is well known that preterm infants have a higher rate of adaption problems compared to full-term newborns, and this was true in the current study as well. The authors also found a significant relationship between neonatal discontinuation signs and preterm birth that was independent of SRI exposure. Based on these findings, the authors conclude that the presence of neonatal signs at two to four weeks was more closely associated with prematurity than with in utero SRI or mood disorder exposure. In this National Health Center-sponsored study, the authors examined whether Tai Chi was effective as a primary treatment for Chinese Americans with major depressive disorder. Sixty-seven Chinese Americans diagnosed with major depressive disorder who were not receiving medication or psychotherapy for depression were offered Tai Chi training for 12 weeks. Patients with severe depression were not included. The results were compared to two control groups an active control group that received psychoeducation for 12 weeks, and a passive control group that was waitlisted during the same period. The authors found that after 12 weeks of intervention, the group receiving Tai Chi showed greater improvement in their depression symptoms compared to the two control groups. No serious side effects were reported. Results from this study demonstrate that Tai Chi can be an effective primary treatment for those with mild to moderate depression. The outcomes of this study have both clinical and public health implications. Many ethnic minorities avoid mental health services because of their concerns about the stigma associated with mental illnesses. For these patients, Tai Chi could be a promising intervention that is culturally appropriate and has no significant side effects. If confirmed by larger studies as an effective primary treatment for depression, 
Tai Chi could help fill the gap of serious shortage of mental health clinicians, both within and outside of the United States. Up to 70% of schizophrenia patients who receive antipsychotics still suffer from unremitting psychotic symptoms. Traditionally, clozapine has been considered superior to other antipsychotics in improving psychotic symptoms and social functioning. Clozapine has been recommended for treatment-resistant schizophrenia after the failure of two adequate antipsychotic trials. Yet, only 30 to 60% of patients benefit from clozapine monotherapy. A meta-analysis in this month's issue focuses on 22 randomized controlled trials of patients with treatment-resistant schizophrenia in which an anti-epileptic drug was added to increase the efficacy of clozapine therapy. The majority of these patients were taken to pyramate, but other medications studied included lamotrigine, sodium valparate, and magnesium valparate. This meta-analysis also includes trials conducted in China and reported in Chinese language databases, an important inclusion as clozapine has been the most frequently used antipsychotic in China for many years. Initially, the addition of topiramate, lamotrigine, or sodium valparate appeared to be superior to clozapine monotherapy. However, the effect of lamotrigine disappeared after removing two trials that were outliers. Although adding to pyramate appeared to improve psychotic symptoms, its discontinuation rate was significantly higher than clozapine monotherapy, indicating poor safety. The researchers did find that adjunctive sodium valparate was associated with a significant reduction in total and positive symptoms and also appeared to be safe. The authors conclude that more high-quality randomized controlled trials are needed to inform clinical recommendations. Exercise has been shown to have numerous health benefits. However, too much exercise can shut down the reproductive access, causing menstrual periods to stop in women, which is associated with a deficiency of the female hormones. Studies have examined estrogen replacement in older women after menopause and in young girls with Turner syndrome who have estrogen deficiency. Interestingly, some of these studies report positive associations of estrogen with cognitive processes such as memory. Researchers from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Harvard, supported with funding from the National Institutes of Health, examined the effect of six months of estrogen replacement on cognitive measures in athletes 14 to 25 years old who had lost their periods from excessive exercise. They found that estrogen replacement led to these athletes performing better in memory tests that examined immediate recall of words. Participants also performed better in tests for executive function that evaluated cognitive flexibility or the ability to switch from one task to another. This study is the first to examine the effects of estrogen replacement on higher mental processes in young athletes. It proposes that estrogen, in addition to its effect on bone health, may play a role in improving memory and executive function in young athletes who lose their menses from excessive exercise. 
Apathy, defined as concurrent reduction in cognitive, emotional, and motoric goal-directed behavior, is one of the most common neuropsychiatric symptoms in older adults and is increasingly prevalent with advancing age. Although depressive symptoms are widely recognized as a predictor of functional decline among older adults, little is known about the predictive utility of apathy in this population. To learn more about this topic, the present study prospectively examined apathy symptoms as predictors of slow gait, frailty, and disability among community-dwelling older adults. Funding support was received from the National Institutes of Health. Participants were recruited from two ongoing studies at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Apathy was assessed using three items from the Geriatric Depression Scale. Slow gait was defined as velocity less than or equal to one standard deviation below age and sex-adjusted mean values. Frailty was defined using the cardiovascular health study criteria, and disability was assessed with a well-validated disability scale. Results showed that individuals with apathy had more than a two-fold risk of developing slow gait and frailty and more than a three-fold risk of becoming disabled. These associations were independent of depressive symptoms and remain robust after adjusting for potential confounders. Based on these results, the authors conclude that apathy is associated with overall risk of functional decline in older adults. From a clinical perspective, these findings indicate that apathy screenings may prevent functional decline and should become a routine part of psychiatric visits with older adults. Previous research suggests that the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPA axis is disrupted in post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD and that its normalization may be associated with symptom improvement. However, few studies have examined cortisol reactivity over the course of treatment. To address this gap, the authors of this study examined the association between HPA axis reactivity and treatment response in psychotherapy for PTSD. Their work was supported by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Thirty veterans with PTSD were randomly assigned to receive 10 sessions of prolonged exposure therapy, or present-centered therapy. For the current analysis, treatment groups were collapsed. Veterans who showed 50% or more reduction in PTSD severity with treatment were high responders. Those who did not were low responders. Salivary cortisol was collected three times during three therapy sessions. Cortisol reactivity was calculated by area under the curve with respect to ground. Modeling was used to measure longitudinal change in salivary cortisol within patients, as well as the effect of treatment responder status. In this pilot study, researchers found an overall effect of session number indicating increases in cortisol output across sessions. They also found that responder status significantly predicted slope of cortisol reactivity across sessions. Compared with high-treatment responders, low-treatment responders showed greater increases in salivary cortisol output over the course of treatment. From these results, the authors conclude that increases in HPA axis reactivity within each session over the course of psychotherapy may be associated with worse treatment response. 
Pregnant women with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and their treating psychiatrists are challenged with balancing the risks between continuing their use of second-generation antipsychotics, or SGAs, or stopping their treatment. To learn more about this complex dilemma, the authors of this article conducted a systemized review from which they were able to draw some preliminary conclusions. First, Bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, if left untreated, expose mothers to a very high risk of relapse during pregnancy and in the immediate postpartum. Second, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are associated with obstetric complications both for mothers with schizophrenia and the newborns of mothers with both bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. One study, moreover, suggests that the risk is reduced in treated mothers as compared to untreated ones. Third, schizophrenia, but not bipolar disorder, may be associated with the worst neonatal outcomes. This conclusion, however, was drawn from studies that did not provide information on drug exposure during pregnancy. Finally, second-generation antipsychotics as a class and individually are not associated with increased recurring defects in fetuses. Evidence regarding the potential effects of SGAs on both short-term and long-term child neurodevelopment remains reassuring overall. The available data appear to show that illness, especially schizophrenia, has a significant risk for adverse outcomes in pregnant women and their newborns. Conversely, the risks of adverse outcomes associated with SGAs during pregnancy are to date inconsistent. The authors conclude that the most reasonable and less harmful choice for clinicians appears to be maintaining treatment in future mothers with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Depression has become an important morbidity factor worldwide with environmental exposures contributing to the risk of this disease. Cigarette smoking is strongly associated with depression, and this association may be bidirectional, with smoking increasing the risk of depression and depression increasing the use of cigarettes as a self-medicating behavior. More than 8,400 chemical constituents are present in tobacco and tobacco smoke, including the neurotoxic heavy metals cadmium and lead. With support from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and using data from 3,905 adult participants from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, the authors of this study analyzed the association of blood levels of cadmium and lead with current depressive symptoms, as determined by the Patient Health Questionnaire module. The authors report that individuals with the highest levels of cadmium in their blood had higher odds of having depressive symptoms. Furthermore, this association was strongest in younger male adults. The authors also found that blood lead levels, cigarette smoking, and obesity were all associated with depressive symptoms in younger female adults. While the design of this analysis precludes the determination of causality, the results support the idea that lead and cadmium, which are major components of cigarettes, may contribute to depression. Therefore, efforts at reducing cadmium and lead exposure through smoking cessation programs may decrease the prevalence of current depressive symptoms. 
And finally, given that cadmium and lead are associated with several other chronic diseases, the benefits of smoking cessation are multifold by decreasing both the incidence of smoking-related diseases as well as cadmium-associated and lead-associated diseases. In this study funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the authors assessed how adults in the United States who have more than one substance use disorder differ from those who have one or no substance use disorders. To investigate this topic, the researchers analyzed data from structured, face-to-face diagnostic interviews of over 43,000 adults as part of the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. They found that those who at baseline had more than one past year substance use disorder at the same time were more likely than other adults to report at least one past year substance use disorder three years later. Males, younger adults, those who had never married, and those with minority sexual identities had increased odds of having more than one substance use disorder at baseline and three years later. This result held true for those with nicotine dependence, two or more anxiety disorders, two or more mood disorders, and two or more personality disorders. Most adults who have more than one substance use disorder have at least one other psychiatric disorder and do not utilize substance abuse treatment or seek help. The authors recommend that if a patient presents with more than one substance use disorder at the same time, clinicians should assess for other psychiatric disorders and plan treatment accordingly. Bipolar disorder is a systemic brain disorder that primarily results from dysfunction in the interaction between the cortical and subcortical regions. Accumulated evidence suggests that cortical-subcortical imbalance could be a trait-related pathogenic factor of bipolar disorder. In this study, the authors considered degree centrality, which is a robust index reflecting both local connectivity and global integration that had not previously been used in studies of bipolar disorder as a whole. They hypothesized that degree centrality might help detect cortical-subcortical disassociation in patients with bipolar disorder. Their research received funding support from Chinese institutions. Resting state functional magnetic resonance imaging was performed on 52 patients, meeting DSM-4 criteria for bipolar disorder and 70 healthy controls. A degree centrality map was calculated within cerebral gray matter for each subject. Degree centrality was compared within and between patients with bipolar disorder and healthy controls. The authors also explored the effects of medication and mood state on degree centrality as well as cortical-subcortical degree centrality correlation. Results showed that spatial distributions of degree centrality in the bipolar disorder group were very similar to those of the healthy control group. Compared to healthy controls, bipolar disorder patients exhibited a significant decrease in degree centrality in cortical regions but showed a significant increase mainly in subcortical regions. No significant effects of medication or mood state on degree centrality were found. The bipolar disorder group showed a significant decrease in cortical-subcortical degree centrality correlation. 
These findings further contribute to the mounting evidence that cortical dysfunction may have a relationship with overactivity of subcortical regions in bipolar disorder pathophysiology. In addition, this study supports the continued development and implementation of graph-based techniques to enhance the understanding of the underlying neural mechanisms in mental disorders such as bipolar disorder. For years, researchers have discussed whether some of the processes involved in the development of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, are similar to those in the development of seizure disorders. Some researchers have speculated that anticonvulsants might be helpful medications for PTSD, but the results of clinical trials have been disappointing. With funding support from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the authors of this article examined trends in anticonvulsant prescriptions among over 700,000 patients with PTSD who were seen in VA hospitals from 2004 through 2013. Results showed that a quarter of VA patients with PTSD received an anticonvulsant in the year following their diagnosis and that use of anticonvulsants grew over the 10-year period. However, many of these patients, it turned out, had started their anticonvulsants before their PTSD diagnosis. Among those who started anticonvulsants after diagnosis, most had some other reason for starting treatment. Anticonvulsant starts in PTSD patients with no identifiable indication were actually stable at about 5% across the 10-year period. The overall increase in anticonvulsant prescriptions seems to be explained by an increase in comorbidities, such as pain and headache disorders. Overall, this study shows that VA patients with PTSD are very complex. The rise in prescriptions for anticonvulsants among this patient group may be appropriate, driven by increased prevalence of comorbid conditions. Ketamine is recognized as a treatment with antidepressant potential, but are there particular patients or situations in which it would be especially useful? In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade discusses both the diagnostic indications for ketamine as well as specific circumstances and contexts in which its use might be considered. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the May Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the May issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the Table of Contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com or just enter May into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.